we have we want to have a little more time for you all to share um, I hope you got something from my sharing but I want to tell you I got a lot from your sharing I really mean it so I like to I like to listen too so I'll give you my part first and then you have to do your part you know, last night a brother asked me a question about this, uh, this pyramid. He said this section, the, remember we said the bottom, the bottom part of the knowledge of the truth is the, is the Word of God itself. We can't ever neglect the Word of God. Everything is there. And we need to read it as much as possible and we need to aim high um, when I say aim high I mean read a lot more um, some of you know that brother Watchman Nee when he was a young believer he testified he read the New Testament once a week for 52 weeks it's actually very doable um, and I told you last night that um, Watchman Nee only expounded very few books of the Bible as, a, as an exposition but one of them he did was the book of Revelation and he did it in the way of a training and he told the ones who wanted to attend that training that there was one requirement they they had to read the book of Revelation 100 times. Then they could attend the training. And he, in that fellowship, he said that um, many people say the book of Revelation is hard to understand. That's because they haven't read it. He said, actually, the book of Revelation interprets itself. It says, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then it says very clearly, the seven lampstands are seven churches. That's not very hard. <laughs> but you have to read it. And it sounds like I'm making light of it. I'm not. The very, very first step to knowing the scriptures is to know the facts. Just know what it says. And that takes time. It takes time. You say, oh man, I can't read the book of Revelation a hundred times. Sure you can. That's nothing super. It's 22 chapters. You can read it in one sitting. Uh, don't aim low. Aim high. You find yourself with an extra hour, read the book of Daniel three times. You'll be surprised what you can get. So anyway, the question was, I said that this second line is the crucial points of the scriptures how do we get those? Well, I told you last night that actually those points, and I'll repeat them, the Word of God, the triune God, the economy of God, the all-inclusive Christ with his full ministry in three divine and mystical stages, the Spirit, the body of Christ, and the New Jerusalem that's actually 
the whole curriculum of the full-time training minus the two classes on practice, which is the God-ordained way and caring for children and young people. So if you have been blessed to go to the full-time training, you got a very good introduction to the crucial points in the scriptures. And when I say introduction, I mean introduction. It takes two years just to get the introduction. If you did not have that opportunity, I have two suggestions for you. They're only suggestions. We have this awesome thing called FTTA Online. You're able to get all of that self-study. Isn't that great? Where was that when I needed it? But it's there today, which is really awesome. And if you don't want to do that or can't do it or don't have the time to do it, I will tell you this, all of those topics that I just mentioned uh, were covered from 1994 to 1997 by Brother Lee in, in the series of books that we call high peak books. So you could study those, you'll get it all. For example, we have the book, and, and those books, what's interesting about them, they're all short. They're short, but wow, really, really, really dense. Like the book, Incarnation, Inclusion, and Intensification, it's real small, but you gotta read about 10 times just to scratch the surface. Um, okay, so that's just a little explanation of, I didn't have time last night. Um, this morning we come to what looks like something different, it's not. We're still talking about how to, how to have a life that seeks first the kingdom of God. And if you recall yesterday, the emphasis that we had was that to live a life that seeks first God's kingdom is to pursue the growth in life. Amen. Pursue the growth in life. Because the growth in life equals the coming of the kingdom. Did that point get into you yesterday? I hope so. That is the coming of the kingdom. It's the growth of the divine seed of the kingdom within us. So we need to pursue the growth in life. And to pursue the growth in life, there's two sides, a positive side and, uh, for lack of a better word, a negative side. The positive side is we supply the nutrients. We feed it. And that food is the word of God. That's like the fertilizer that will cause the divine seed within us to grow. And then we care for the condition of the soil. That is the dealing with our heart. The dealing with our heart. That's to pull the weeds, get rid of the thorns, dig up the rocks, make room for the divine seed to grow in our heart. So that's what we mean by pursuing the growth in life. But brothers and sisters, in our Christian life and walk, there are two major things that we need to pay attention to, and we've only covered one of the two. The first one is we need to pay attention to life. 
The second that we'll touch today, is we need to pay attention to our service. Uh, before the Lord, all believers have these two statuses. As to life, we are virgins. Uh, loving the Lord, seeking the Lord, um, um, preparing to marry him. That's the real marriage. This marriage we have in this lifetime is temporary. That one lasts eternally. And, um, and then as regards our service, we are slaves. So when we meet the Lord and when we come to his judgment seat, there will be these two things that he will evaluate. Don't be scared by this. This is really good. We already know today. We know exactly today what he will check with us about in that day. And it's only two things. It's like a final exam. The final exam of the Christian life, only two questions. And you get to have the questions in advance and you get to prepare for your whole Christian life. So if you flunk, sorry, it's your fault. <laughs> What's the first, the first question on the final exam of the Christian life is during your Christian life, how much did you let the seed grow? Or in the context of this outline that we'll cover this morning, how much of the spirit as the oil saturated your vessel? That's referring to life. That's referring to the growth of the seed within us. And then the second question on the final exam of the Christian life, what did you do to serve the Lord in his body and for his body to reach his goal to prepare his bride? He gave us all some portion, some gift, some uh, uh, ability to serve him. Did we use it? and how faithful were we? So the title of this outline is being watchful in life and faithful in service. This will kind of complete the picture of having a living that seeks first the kingdom of God. Uh, I don't want you to leave here thinking all I need to do is pursue the growth in life. That you may take that as something very individual. Uh, now, this is a matter of the church life. It's a matter of living in the church life, serving in the church life, being uh, a vital part of the church life. So I hope we get a more balanced view this morning. And what we're going to fellowship is something very, very familiar, so I can do it quickly and leave some time, hopefully more time for you, because we all know this. Matthew 25 presents two parables to us to show us these two aspects of the Christian life. The first parable is the parable of the ten virgins. And the second parable is the parable of the slaves. So we're just going to cover these two parables this morning. Uh, a lot of these points you know. Um, 
There won't be a lot of new things here, but things don't need to be new in order for the Lord to speak to us. That's a big, that's a big trap. Actually, a lot of the important things we've heard before, but we actually need to hear them again. So try your best not to rely on what you have heard in the past. In fact, I'm pretty sure I will say a couple things you've never heard before. So let's find out, huh? Okay, number one says for life we need oil. Amen. The oil in the Bible signifies the Spirit of God, even His filling. So that's why I wanted to sing that song. Fill us, Jesus. Fill us that we may be enabled to live the virgin life, the kingdom life for the Lord's testimony. Last night, we talked about four stages of the growth in life. Do you remember which stage the filling of the Spirit was in? It's actually in the third stage. And remember, we said you should be entering into the third stage by the time you're 40 years old. So this is a good word for you. The filling of the Spirit. And when we say the filling of the Spirit, we're really talking about when we get regenerated, the Spirit comes into our human spirit. That's what regeneration is. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But the filling of the Spirit is the spreading of the Spirit from our spirit into our heart, into our soul which is what we were talking about yesterday. So this word filling is not the filling of our spirit. It's the filling of our soul. It's the filling of our heart with the spirit that is already in our spirit. Okay, and in the parable, the verse says, Matthew 25, 1, at that time the kingdom of the heavens will be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Amen. Do you know that the Lord is our bridegroom? We need to experience Christ as our bridegroom. He's the, you know, I would tell you that my, my wife is the love of my life. She is. But as I told you last year, she's number two. And she knows it. I have another love of my life. His name is Jesus. And it must be that way. You want to have a good marriage life? Make the Lord number one. Make your spouse number two. It shouldn't offend her because she needs to have the Lord as her bridegroom as well. Virgins signify the believers viewed from the aspect of life. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 11. That's where Paul said, he betrothed us. Oh, hey, you know what? You're all engaged. You're betrothed. You're going to get married. And... What I really love about that verse is it mentions, remember yesterday we talked about the pure heart and we said that the pure heart is a single heart. 
a heart with only one goal. You know, another word for single is simple. When you're single in your heart, life is simple. Decisions are simple. Where should I go? Whatever the Lord wants. What should I do? Whatever the Lord wants. What job should I take? Whatever the Lord wants. It's so simple. But when your heart is not single, man, life is complicated. Every decision is complicated. And in that section in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul, after he says he betrothed us as a virgin to Christ, he said, I fear that your hearts would be corrupted. Like the serpent deceived Eve, I'm worried about your hearts, that they would lose that, that simpleness, the simplicity and purity toward Christ. I hope we could all be simple. Uh, when things are complicated, it's a bad sign. <laughs> it usually means our heart is mixed. We, we think that the complication comes from the environment. You go, oh, you don't understand how complicated my situation is. Actually, everybody's situation is complicated. That doesn't, that's, that's a given. We don't control the environment. We do control our heart. And if your heart is complicated, that's the problem. It's not your environment. It's not your environment. Okay, believers who are the kingdom people are like chaste virgins bearing the Lord's testimony, the lamp, in the dark age and going out of the world to meet the Lord. Amen. For this they need not only the indwelling, but also the filling of the Spirit. So the indwelling Spirit is the Spirit who regenerates our spirit at the time we receive the Lord. And then after receiving the Lord, we need the filling. We need the spreading of this spirit in our inner being. And the picture that is given in this parable is that there's a lamp and a vessel. Um, the lamp is where the oil is burning. The vessel contains a reservoir of oil to supply the burning of the lamp. So lamps signify the spirit of the believers. You have the verse here, which contains the spirit of God as the oil. The believers shine forth the light of the spirit of God from within their spirit. In order for the divine light to shine into man's inward parts, God's spirit must soak, mingle with man's spirit as the wick. <laughs> that's good, huh? You know, in the lamp, the only part that, that's made of plant material is the wick, signifying humanity. The lamp itself signifies divinity. And then they burn together with man's spirit. Amen. Like we read yesterday in 2 Timothy 1, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, for God has not given you a spirit of cowardice, but of power. So our spirit 
is supposed to burn together with the Lord. Thus the believers, and by this burning, the believers become the light of the world and shine as a lamp in the darkness. You know, I don't know if you ever noticed this in Matthew 5. Let me ask you a question before I say this. Is the New Jerusalem mentioned in the Gospels? It's a little trick question. In Matthew 5, the answer is yes. Uh, Not by name. In Matthew 5, the Lord said, firstly, in, in Matthew 8, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall by no means walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Then in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. And a city situated upon a mountain cannot be hidden. A city of light on top of a mountain. Hey, that's the new Jerusalem. In the Lord speaking in Matthew 5, it's also us becoming God in life and nature, but not the Godhead. He's the light of the world. We become the light of the world, which consummates in the new Jerusalem as the light of the world. That's in, who knew? It's in Matthew chapter 5, but it is. It's right there. We become that light bearing the testimony of the Lord in this age of darkness. I like the word in Philippians 2, in the midst of a crooked and perverted generation. Boy, is that not true. Where's, where the, I'm so glad there's a church in Washington, D.C. What a crooked and perverted place. What a dark place. The only light in this city is coming from the lampstand. And we need that. And in order for the lampstand, which is the church, to shine brightly, we individually need to be burning in our spirit with this light. Okay, and we all know in this parable, five of the virgins were wise, five were, were foolish, or five were prudent, five were foolish. And... I'm not going to get into the doctrine this morning. Some people misinterpret this parable to say that the five foolish virgins were not saved. They're not believers. And the five uh, uh, prudent ones are the ones who believe. This is not a parable about salvation. If you read it carefully, it's not what it's talking about. First of all, unbelievers in relation to the Lord are not virgins. And they're also not waiting for his coming. So this is not referring to believers and unbelievers. It's referring to all believers. It's referring to us in our Christian life. In our Christian life, we may be wise and we may not be wise. Put this together with Ephesians 5 where it talks about being wise by redeeming the time. That's what this is talking about. How do we use our time in our Christian life? Did we waste our time? And because we wasted our time, we didn't gain the Lord every day as the oil to saturate our vessel? Let me tell you, in this matter, 
You can't make it up in a short time. This is not like cramming for a test. In college, I did very, very well by cramming. <laughs> Have a good short-term memory. But on the final exam of the Christian life, you can't cram. You know why? Because you have to gain the oil over many, many, many years. Don't try. Don't think. I'll do it later. I Sometimes I hear this from younger saints. Well, you know, when I get to be old like you, then I'll do it. There's no guarantee you will live long enough to do that. And even if you do, it'll be too late. Um, when you get to be my age, you better have already been getting the oil for 40 years because you can't make that up. Uh, so that's the prudent virgins. The prudent virgins are the ones who not only received the Spirit into their spirit, but allowed the Spirit to move into their heart, like we spoke yesterday, to saturate the vessel. Man is a vessel made for God, and man's personality is in his soul. Hence, vessels in Matthew 25, 4, signifies the souls of the believers. When we read Romans 9, Paul uses this word vessel to talk about the human being created by God. Man was made as a vessel. A vessel is a container. So now we need to ask a question. If man was made as a container, what was he made to contain? This is a good gospel message, huh? He was made, he, he was you can, you can get the answer by looking at the shape of the vessel. When you look at a Coke bottle, nothing else is shaped like a Coke bottle. As soon as you see it, you go, oh, that's a Coke bottle. Man is a God bottle. He's shaped like God. He's a God-shaped vessel. So that's what he's made to contain. When you look at a glove, you don't wonder what it's for. It could only be for one thing. Nothing, nothing else is shaped like that, is it? Only man is shaped like God. And man is made to contain God. And so in God's view, when he looks at human beings, he sees vessels Amen. that were made to contain him as the spirit. And we should have that view when we see people. Don't look at the outward stuff. Don't, don't say, oh, oh, that person has tattoos. That person has piercings. So what? That's just the outside of the vessel. That vessel is made to contain God. Amen. I'm glad the brothers who preached the gospel to me did not look at the outside of the vessel. It was a pretty ugly vessel. But you know what? I got God. Amen. <laughs> because if somebody brought the gospel to me. Well, that's what we need to do. Okay, the five prudent virgins not only have oil in their lamps, but also take oil in their vessels. 
that they have oil in their lamps signifies that they have the Spirit of God dwelling in their spirit. You know, there's a verse in the Old Testament. I didn't look it up. Maybe one of you can help me. It says, you have lit my lamp. I think it might be in the Psalms. For God to light our lamp is to regenerate our spirit. That's what this is talking about. And that they take oil in their vessels signifies that they have the spirit of God filling and saturating their souls. Now in the parable, if you recall, when the bridegroom comes, the five foolish virgins say to the five prudent virgins, give us some oil. Our lamps are going out. And the prudent virgins tell them, you, we can't give you ours. You have to go and buy some. So while they went away to buy, the bridegroom came and they missed him. So what's the significance? Brothers and sisters, the significance is this. Every one of us will be saturated with the Spirit in our soul. Every one of us. The only question is, is it going to happen sooner or later? It's the only question. And the prudent virgins happen sooner. The foolish virgins, it happens a little late. So they miss the top enjoyment of the Lord during the millennium. Well, there's a key word that appears here in this parable. That's the word by. The, 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 the wise virgins tell the foolish virgins, you need to buy the oil. That tells us something very important for our Christian life. And here it is on the outline. The word buy in Matthew 25, 9 indicates that a price must be paid. Having the filling of the Holy Spirit is at a cost. So what does it cost to have the filling of the Holy Spirit? We actually talked about it yesterday. To have the Spirit fill our soul, the cost is we deal with the condition of our heart. And here it gives some examples, giving up the world, dealing with the self, loving the Lord above all, and counting all things loss for Christ. Now, before I go on, let me ask you a question. What do you think about that price? Is that a good deal or is that expensive? <laughs> it's a very relative thing, isn't it? It all depends on how you value things. Let me tell you a funny story. When I fell in love with my dear wife, um, I wanted to give her an engagement ring, but I was a foolish virgin. <laughs> I was definitely a foolish bachelor. Now, I'm gonna give you a little free advice, brothers. When you go to buy the ring, talk to her first. I neglected to do that. I just exposed myself. I bought her what I believed was a beautiful ring. It was a diamond. 
Aren't diamonds beautiful? I thought diamonds were a girl's best friend. <laughs> My wife actually doesn't like diamonds, but I didn't know that. So I spent a lot of money, at least to me it was a lot of money, on a diamond ring. And I didn't find out till 10 years later when she told me, you know, I really don't like diamonds. <laughs> she said, do, do you mind if I just get a plain ring? I said, oh my goodness, am I stupid. I said, yes, of course. You know, some people think diamonds are really valuable to them. I just came from South Africa, that's diamond country. And they are wild about diamonds there and big ones. And I saw, oh man, I saw, a big, I saw a big diamond there this time. Someone was wearing it. <laughs> but you know, um, my wife wouldn't be impressed by that. If I said, well, you know, you could have that big diamond, but it's gonna cost um, $300,000, she'd go, forget it, I don't want that. Because she doesn't value that. But someone who values diamonds would be, oh man, 300,000, no problem, I'll sell my house. <laughs> I've got to have that diamond, because I like diamonds. You get the point? Is this price to gain the oil, is this a high price? Depends on your system of values. It depends on your system of values. And then it says, if we do not pay the price today, this is an important point, we will have to pay it after we are resurrected. Okay, so in the parable, the, the virgins die. They sleep. That means they die. And then they're resurrected. And they're resurrected in the same condition in which they died. If they died full of the Spirit, they, they were raised full of the Spirit. If they died short of the Spirit, they were raised short of the Spirit. And then they had to continue to make up what they lacked. That's a picture of the Millennial Kingdom. When we are raised, if we die before the Lord returns, when we are raised, if we didn't allow the Lord to fill our vessel in our Christian life, we have to do it later. Because I told you, everyone will be, every believer will be completely filled with the Spirit as the oil. It's only a matter of time. So I like point D, it says that's our urgent need. Our urgent need is to gain more of the Spirit. It's starting to sound urgent, isn't it? Because we don't know how long we have on this earth. Our urgent need is to gain more of the Spirit as the consummation of the process triune God. And I like this, to live a life of buying the oil. See, the, buying the oil, it's a very, very long-term matter. Just like yesterday we talked about pursuing the truth. I told you it's gonna take 40 years, it will if you're serious. And buying the oil, you have to live a life of buying the oil. It can't be something you do occasionally. Well, you can do it occasionally, but I guarantee you later on, it will have to become a way of life, a way of life. 
live a life of buying an extra portion of the spirit to saturate our entire being. Okay, now B, I have a little burden on B and then we'll go on to the matter of service. Every day we need to be watchful. Now this is talking about the first part of the outline, being watchful in life. Every day we need to be watchful by paying the price to buy the spirit as the golden oil so that we may supply the churches with the spirit. See, this is not just for us. The church is a lampstand. And how's the church in Washington, D.C. going to overcome the darkness of this city? Well, by me, by you, being watchful every day to pay the price to buy the Spirit so that the church, the lampstand, will be supplied with the Spirit for the testimony of Jesus. Then we will be rewarded by the Lord to participate in the marriage dinner of the Lamb. That means we will have the top enjoyment of Christ during the millennial kingdom if we allow the Spirit to saturate us in this age. If we don't, we will spend the millennial kingdom doing what we should have done in this age. Now, underneath point B, take a look at your outline. There are eight points. And I like these very, very much. These, are, these eight points tell us what it means to be watchful every day to gain the spirit as the oil. They're pretty self-explanatory. I'll just read them and say a little bit. We need to love the Lord above all. Amen. That means we need to value him above all. It's talked about the system of value. We need to love the Lord above all, having our eyes opened to see his supreme preciousness. And this goes together with point two. We need to count all things lost on account of Christ that we may gain him, be found in him, and know him. Both of these points refer to Paul's experience in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, Paul relates his own personal testimony. I think it's worthy of reading carefully. I like to know Paul's testimony, don't you? Here's what he said. I'm paraphrasing. Before I met Christ, there were some things that were very, very precious to me. And they were all things related to himself. I was born as a Hebrew. I was born in the best tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, the ones that didn't forsake David. And not only was I a Hebrew of Hebrew parents, I was a Pharisee. <laughs> and not only was I a Pharisee, I was blameless according to the law. I kept the law. Of course, he didn't, but he thought he did. And <laughs> these things he was proud of. That's who he was. That's, that's, where, he, that's where he got his self-worth from. Uh, and then he said, he gives a testimony. He says, but what things were gains to me? These I have counted loss on account of what? The excellency 
the excellency. That's the supreme preciousness, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. In other words, those things seemed really important and really valuable until I compared them to Christ. And as soon as I compared them to Christ, I, I realized those things aren't worth anything. I count them as loss. I thought they meant something, but they don't. Well, that's only the first part of his experience. He counted them as loss. The second part of his experience is he lost them. He said, uh, after he counted them as loss, sorry, now I'm having trouble quoting it. I got to look it up. Um, first, he counted them as loss, and then he says he suffered the loss of all things. Let me read it so I'll get it right. But what things were gains to me, these I have counted as loss on account of Christ. But moreover, oh, not only those things that he had previously considered gains, but moreover, I also count all things to be loss on account of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So first I compare Christ to the things that I thought were valuable. They're not valuable. Then I compare Christ to all things. Nothing's valuable other than Christ. Then the second part of his experience, on account of whom I have suffered the loss of all things. It's one thing to count all things lost. It's another thing to lose them. And all of us pay some price in following the Lord, don't we? You paid a price to come here this weekend. You paid a financial price. You used your time. You, you didn't do other things you could have done. That's a price. Was it high or low? Well, depends how you value this weekend. And I like Paul's word. He said, I lost everything. It was refuse. You know, how we talk about the price we pay means a lot. We go, oh, you can't imagine the price I paid to take this way. The suffering, the opposition. <laughs> Paul didn't talk that way. He got beaten. He got shipwrecked. He got stoned. And he said, it was a light affliction. <laughs> It's a light affliction. I lost everything. It was refuse. We have a little suffering and we think we're a martyr, you know. Uh, oh, the price I took. Well, yeah, there's a price because it's the most valuable thing. Amen. That's, don't look, I like to say it this way. Don't look at the price. Look at the prize. The prize. That prize is priceless. You know, there's certain things, if you had all the money in the world, you couldn't buy them. There's no price. That's what we're talking about. So, is the price high or low? I ask you again. I would say, in the words of one of our hymns, it's a bargain, it's a holy bargain. 
are you kidding me? I get to trade what I have for Christ? Arise, the holy bargain strike, the fragment for the whole. That's what a deal that are, is your heritage really that great? So what? You're a Hebrew. You're of the tribe of Benjamin. You were educated by Gamaliel. We could just substitute, you know. Uh, I was born in Washington, D.C. My father was in the government. I went to George Mason. I uh, got a Ph.D. You can, you, can, you can substitute whatever you like in there. Is that so valuable? It's really not. Um, not when you compare it to Christ. And then the things, yeah, we paid a price to take this way. I did. You pay a price to serve the Lord. I did. I would say it was the smartest thing I ever did. I'll do it a hundred times out of a hundred. And if the price goes up, I'll still do it. It was such a good deal. You know, in 1986, Brother David and I were together in Taiwan, and I, I left the United States with my wife to go serve in Taiwan for two years. We sold literally every possession we owned, except for two things. I kept my ministry books. Those aren't for sale. And I kept some clothes. Because... <laughs> I needed clothes. <laughs> but I sold everything else I owned to go there. I'll do it a hundred times out of a hundred times. Smartest thing I ever did. The dumbest thing I ever did was not pay the price. We all have stories like this in our Christian life. Well, you'll never regret what you spend on the Lord. You will always regret what you don't spend on the Lord. We need, to, okay, now we go to number three. We need to enjoy the Lord in the Word every day. Why? Because that's, you know, the Word actually is the embodiment of the Spirit. It's through the Word that we receive the Spirit. If we want to be saturated with the Spirit, we, we need to come to the Word of God every day. And as I said yesterday, or last evening, it's a lifelong thing. Just put it in your life. Put it in your schedule. And I know schedules have a way of blowing up, but at least have a plan. And then when the schedule blows up, make it a priority. Uh, I told you last year, my practice as a young person, when I was a student, I just treated reading the Bible like a class. In between classes, nine o'clock I had tax accounting, uh, uh, 10 o'clock I had financial accounting, uh, then I had a break. On my schedule, I put reading the Bible. And I had one hour every day. I spent 30 minutes to read the Bible, 30 minutes to read the ministry. Well, it's not very much, but I did it every day. If you do an hour a day, it adds up. It adds up. And when I was working, 
I, I used, at least they, at least they, you know, Pharaoh gave me an hour for lunch. <laughs> I could get away from the pyramids for one hour. And my practice was, I had five minutes for lunch and 55 minutes to read the Bible and the ministry. And all of my coworkers knew, don't even bother inviting Mark to lunch, he's reading the Bible. Because I had my Bible sitting right on my desk. And you know what? A bunch of my coworkers got saved. That was a testimony to them. Where, where, where you make it, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Where you make it a priority, there's a way. Now, did it work every day? No. But that was my schedule. Um, build it into your schedule. We have to be in the Word every day if we're serious about gaining the Spirit as the oil. <clears throat> and we need to deal with our sins thoroughly, and we need to abide in the fellowship with the Lord daily and hourly. That's what we talked about yesterday. That's part of the dealing with the heart. <clears throat> then here we go again. We need to redeem our time and spend our energy. I like that. Spend our energy to be saturated and soaked with God's holy word. We have a limited amount of energy, don't we? If you give all of your energy to your job or anything else, you have to prioritize energy the way you prioritize time and money. There's a limited amount of it. And actually to seriously endeavor to get into the word, it requires energy. And anyway, I like this point. I, I like Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, that, that put that word together with Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may make his home in your heart. The Greek word's almost identical. The word dwell in Colossians 3.16 is indwell, N-O-I-K-O, to, to house itself in you. It's almost the identical word in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ the person would make his home in our heart. Actually, for the word to saturate our heart equals the spirit and equals Christ making home in our hearts. So that's why this point is so crucial. Think about your experience. You go a week without the word of God, you, you, you feel it. Where's Christ? Where's the spirit? Something is missing. That's because this is the way that the Spirit is supplied to us. Then it says we need to be watchful on the alert for our prayer life, redeeming our time to pray. Well, just put these two together. Put your reading of the Word of God together with prayer. Reserve time every day to pray and read the Word of God. Uh, the easiest way, the best way to pray is with the Word of God. I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to need to go on. And then we need to 
live, act, behave, do things, and have our being according to the mingled spirit. Amen. That's right. If we walk according to the mingled spirit, all the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled. So that's the, the life side of the Christian life. That's the life of being um, a person seeking first the kingdom of God. But then the other side is the side of service. And we should never think of serving as a requirement. If it's a requirement, something's seriously wrong. You know the expression labor of love. Um, a labor of love is like raising your children. Is it, is it a burden? No, it's a labor of love. I never considered raising my children as a burden. Oh, I have to raise my children. No, I, I, I did it out of love and I would do anything for them out of love. That's, that's what this service must be. So here it says, for service, for work, we need the talent, the spiritual gift that we may be equipped as a good slave to accomplish what the Lord intends to accomplish. You know, that's the nature of a slave. A slave has no opinion. It just, and no suggestions either. It's, 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 it, what does the master want to accomplish? Doesn't matter. I, I don't have anything to say about it. I don't have any opinion about it. So in this parable, we have this verse, the kingdom of the heavens is just like a man about to go abroad who called his own slaves and delivered to them his possessions, his possessions. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and he went abroad. Slaves signify the believers viewed from the aspect of service. His possessions... What are his possessions? The church with all of the believers who constitute God's household. That's what belongs to him. That's his possessions. And he commits those possessions to his slaves, some more than others, according to their capacity. Talent signifies spiritual gifts. The filling Listen to this. This is good. The filling of the Spirit in life enables us to use the spiritual gift in service, work. And the spiritual gift in service matches the filling of the Spirit in life so that we may be a perfect member of Christ. You know, this exactly matches the sequence in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 says that the gifts that the Lord gives to the body perfect the members of the body so that they function for the building up of the body. The first perfecting is not a perfecting in service or function. It's a perfecting in the growth in life. You read Ephesians 4, right after verse 11 and 12, which talks about the perfecting of the saints, the next following verses are on growing. And then comes the functioning or the service for the building up of the body of Christ. It's always the sequence. The joy 
of your master. You know, when, they, when, they, when the master came, he rewarded the, the slave who had made a profit. And the reward was something called the joy of your master. What's that? That's the Lord's approval. You know, um, you have another uh, uh, case in the Gospels where I think it's Matthew 7 where people said to the Lord, we did many things in your name. We cast out demons. We, we did all of these things. And the Lord said, yeah, you did that, but I didn't approve it. I didn't know, I didn't know you. This joy is his approval. Enter into the joy of your master. That's better than any outward reward. He doesn't give us an outward reward. He, the reward is joy. You can't buy that. There's no price for that. In this age, we must use the Lord's gift to save people and to minister his riches to them. Our inward motive for serving the Lord is our love for him. You know, in Exodus 21, you have this very, very touching story. And, you know, the Lord does not compel us to serve him. Even though we use the word slave and slaves do not have rights, in the picture, in the Old Testament, the slave has a chance to make a choice. He can exercise his will. After a few years, if he chooses, he can be released from slavery. Sometimes I hear the saints say, man, I feel like I'm in slavery in the church life. Sometimes the serving ones like, oh man, the campus team, it's slavery. Well, you'll have your chance. You can get out if you want. But in Exodus 21, it says there was this slave. When the time came to be released, he said, I don't want to be free. I do not wish to go out free. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. My master, that's the Lord. My wife, that's the church. My children, that's the saints. I love the Lord. I love the church. I love the saints. And then he says, I will not go out free. Oh, that's good, huh? I like to pray read that verse. That verse has been a tremendous supply to me. You know, talking about, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I just tell the Lord, Lord, I will not go out free. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. So the motive of serving him is love. We need to use the Lord's gift to build up the church by serving others with Christ and ministering Christ as grace to them. 
it's what we mean by using the Lord's gift. It's we all do the same thing. We preach the gospel to others. We bring Christ to them. Then we nourish them. Then we perfect them. We shepherd them until they can also speak Christ for the building up of the church. That's what we call the God-ordained way. And uh, that's what it means to use our gift. We can all do that. That's not for a few people. That's why we all need to be a part of a vital group, vitally joined with other saints, not to try to do this individually, but to pray, to contact people, to minister Christ to people. Um, We will have a whole message in Phoenix next week on the practice of the God-ordained way. But let me just say this, I've seen it practiced in various ways in various places, but uh, one, I just want to tell you one case that impressed me so much. I went to, <coughs> I went to a small group meeting of some saints in Mexico City, and when I got there, um, uh, who knows Spanish here? Yeah, what's the, what's the Spanish word for goat? Chivas. Chivo? Okay, but they use Chivo. They told me, they told me, uh, Hermano Mark, we are the Chivos. <laughs> they said, we're the bad saints. We're the goats. We're not good. And I said, really? I said, okay, I like meeting with goats. Let's do it. And... <laughs> And, and as we were meeting there, listen, I mean, they were just being humble, actually. You know what they did? This was not their small group meeting on Friday night. This was a small group meeting where they got together to pray and fellowship. And they all pulled out a piece of paper. There was about eight of them. And on that piece of paper were 27 names. And... Then they did like this. They said, hey, Ben, uh, your cousin, uh, did, did he get saved yet? No? Okay, we'll pray. We'll pray for him to get saved. They go, uh, David, your, your co-worker, he's still not baptized? Okay, we'll pray that he gets baptized. Uh, Jeremy, your, your cousin, um, she's coming this week to the, to the group meeting? Okay, good. And then they prayed for all 27 names. What would it what would happen if all the small groups did this? This is and you don't need to be super to do this. Chivos can do it. <laughs> you don't need to be great. You go, oh no, 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 you have to be vital. You have to, yes, you do need to be vital. But I'm just saying all of us can do this. You don't need to be super. And it doesn't take that long. And if you can't get together, do it on the phone. Go over the... And if you don't have 27 names, have five names. If we all did this, think of what would happen. Think of how our, our gifts, our talents would be multiplied if all of us were involved in a vital group like this. Okay, uh, where am I? See?
We need to serve as laboring priests of the gospel of God, saving sinners, to offer them to God as acceptable sacrifices and eventually present them full-grown in Christ. That's the first step of the God-ordained way, to beget, to beget spiritual children. Serve as priests that sinners may be saved. And, you know, with the gospel, the most effective thing over time is not preaching the gospel to strangers. The most effective thing is preach the gospel to people you have some kind of relationship with. Your friends, your relatives, your co-workers, the lady you see every single week at the checkout at the grocery store, the dry cleaning lady, the dentist, the doctor, those people, the auto mechanic, you know them. They know you. Preach the gospel to the, to the, to the lady who cuts your hair. Uh, you see her, I see her every month, so every month I say something to her. I say, hey, I just got back from Washington, D.C. We were talking about living a life in the kingdom. <laughs> I do. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we need to do. Uh, two, after we beget spiritual children, we need to supply others with Christ as their spiritual food at the proper time. That's to nourish others. And we need to speak Christ to all kinds of people daily in season and out of season. Okay, a quick testimony here um, for the working saints. When I was working uh, 20 years ago, I'm sorry, it's a long time ago, when I was working in this office, Ben used to come and visit me. <laughs> ben was in school. He would come to my office. We would we would have some fellowship while I was supposed to be working. And uh, um, while I was working there, um, I was the only believer. The owner of the company who I worked for was a, what we like to call a raw heathen. I mean, uh, wow, he was a big sinner. When he sinned, he did it right. He did it big. <laughs> and he, um, he hired a lot of his friends. It's like, it's like Matthew, the tax collector, with all of his buddies, you know. He hired all of his friends to work in this company. And they, this was a wild bunch. And then the Lord dropped me in the middle. You know, the, the guy who stays in the office at lunch to read the Bible. And uh, let me tell you what happened. You know, I didn't say that much but they knew I mean I didn't make any secret that I was a believer and I did in fact read my Bible at lunch in the beginning they all made fun of me they just mocked me but I prayed for them and I told the Lord I said Lord you put me here for a reason um, and I don't want to come to this stupid job unless it means something for you, for the church, and for your economy. I just can't bear to do this job if, if the only purpose of this job is making a paycheck. I just don't have any heart to do it. So I prayed for the people in that place. And one day, 
as I was leaving the office, it was about 6 p.m., there was one woman in the office who was a particularly vicious opposer. She just hated Christians. And, and, and she, she really disliked me just because I was a believer. Well, maybe maybe because I'm not a very nice guy too, but I think it was mainly because I was a believer. And, uh, and she was the worst one. So I was walking out of the office and I walked past the door of her office and she says, uh, <clears throat> Mark, can, can I talk to you? I'm like, oh boy, here, here we go. And I'm trying to go home, you know, and I say, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I walk in her office, I say, yeah, yeah, well, what do you need? She goes, how can I have faith? I'm like, that's a little out of season. <laughs> I was totally unprepared for this. And I said, what do you mean, how can you have faith? She goes, I need to have faith to believe. I don't have it. You have it. How do I get it? So I preached the gospel to her. She got saved. Then I preached the gospel to the owner of the company. He got saved and baptized. And after the owner of the company got saved and baptized, he was so appreciative. Listen, this was my boss. This is what my boss said to me. Now picture your boss right now. <laughs> my boss said to me, he says, Mark, from now on, you just come in the office anytime you feel like it. You leave anytime you feel like it. You take any time off you need to take off. Make sure you have time to serve the Lord. Wow. That's my boss, <laughs> the big sinner. <laughs> this, this happened. And then a lot of my other coworkers got saved. And, um, you know, this is possible. I, I didn't set out to do anything. I didn't do a gospel work in my office. I actually said very little, but I enjoyed the Lord. I got into the Word. I tried my best to express the Lord, and that's what came out. So don't think your job is not, it's no different. Human beings are human beings. None of these people were promising. <laughs> especially my boss. He was a very wealthy man. He's like the last person you would ever guess could, could get saved. But he did. He did. So, anyway, today I would say pray with your vital companions for your coworkers and let's see what comes out. We need to speak Christ in season and out of season. We need to and then we need to desperately endeavor to build up a habit of speaking in the meetings. That's prophesying. What a great recovery prophesying is. And a big part of our service in the church. Listen, when we say service, we think of things like, oh, okay, I gotta serve on children's meeting, I gotta help with this, I gotta help with that. Let me tell you, there's one service that every one of us needs to participate in. That's to minister Christ to the body of Christ by prophesying for the building up of the body of Christ. We all need to do that service. 
And regarding that service, Paul says, he, he speaks with terms he doesn't use any other time. He says, desire earnestly that you may prophesy. I never heard him say, desire earnestly that you serve on children's meeting. And then he says, seek that you may excel to the building up of the church. What is that? It's, it's telling us something. Prophesying is an extremely important service because prophesying directly builds up the church. So in the matter of prophesying, we have to desire earnestly and seek that we may excel. We should not mistreat our fellow believers by criticizing, judging, or exposing them. Instead, we should admonish the disorderly, console the little-souled, sustain those who are weak in spirit, soul, or body, or weak in the faith, and be long-suffering toward all. You know, where this really gets practiced is in the group meetings. I never forget in the training and practice of the vital groups talking about shepherding the saints. There's a word there. It always touches me. It says we need to go to the saints who are backslidden, who think that the church condemns them, and tell them the church does not condemn you. It's like the, the word in John 8 that the Lord gave to the woman. I don't condemn you. Imagine what music that was to her ears. And you don't have to be an elder to tell somebody the church does not condemn you. We're a member of the body of Christ. Tell the people who are thinking that they're being despised. Go and tell them, I don't despise you. The church doesn't despise you. There's a place for you. Come to our, come to our small group. Um, through our involvement in the world, we should not render the Lord's gift useless, letting it lie waste under the cloak of certain earthly excuses. We really hit this hard last year when I was here, which is why I was sure I wasn't going to be back this year. Uh, we talked about all of the excuses that we use for not using our gift, but the main one is our livelihood, our livelihood. I would, I would if I weren't so busy making a living. Well, use your will. Uh, our work and labor for the Lord and the gospel are not by our natural life and natural ability, but by the Lord's resurrection life and power. Resurrection is the eternal principle in our service to God. Um, the end of, well, here you have number 17 talking about Aaron's rod that budded as a picture of resurrection. What qualified Aaron for the priesthood was the budding rod. In, in type, that means what qualifies us to serve the Lord is the resurrection life, which we all have. The more we are filled with the resurrection life, the more qualified we are. The life-giving spirit is the reality of the triune God, the reality of resurrection, 
and the reality of the body of Christ. So that resurrection life is the spirit. That spirit is also the reality of the body. So we minister the spirit to the body in resurrection. That's our service. Now, here's a little bit about what it means to minister in resurrection. I like this. All those who know resurrection have given up hope in themselves. They know they can't make it. Do you know that the Apostle Paul was like that? You read 2 Corinthians 1. Man, first time I read that, I'm like, come on, Paul, have a little faith. I criticize the Apostle Paul. I'll have to apologize to him in the next age. I, I, because Paul said we were so pressed that we despaired even of living. If, that, if the Apostle Paul feels that way, I guess I'm not doing as bad as I thought I was. You know, sometimes we reach that point, don't we? We go, I, 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 I may not make it through this. <laughs> Even Paul felt that way. Until he gave up hope in himself, then he experienced resurrection. That's a good thing. We must acknowledge that we are nothing, have nothing, and can do nothing. Have you ever prayed that? I have prayed this prayer many times. Lord, I am nothing. I have nothing. I can do nothing. Practice saying that. It will really help you. We must come to the end of ourselves to be convinced of our utter uselessness. The resurrected Christ as a life-giving spirit lives in us, enabling us to do what we could never do in ourselves. That's the grace by the grace we labor more abundantly, by the grace of God we are what we are, and we labor more abundantly, yet not us, but the grace which is with us. And then the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, we should always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor for the Lord in his resurrection life, with his resurrection power, will never be in vain, but will result in the fulfilling of God's eternal purpose. So this is to be watchful in life and faithful in service. If we take care of just these two things, to the extent that we can, the Lord knows your situation. He knows about your job. He knows about your boss. He knows about your husband. He knows about your children. To the extent that we can, we prioritize our life so that we contact the Lord as the Spirit in the Word every day. And we join ourselves to other saints in a vital group to be able to exercise our gift to minister Christ to others. And we prophesy. We seek to prophesy for the building up of the church. I think it's something we can all do. Some of us can do it more, some of us can do it less, but I think we can all do it. Okay, now we want to have time for sharing. Ben will tell us what to do.